Today we are in Kings. We are in 1 Kings, which is the 11th book of the Bible, so that will give you an idea generally where it is. Uh, we've been following the story of God as we've walked through everything, and we're going to continue to do that for a while. So we're not covering every word of the Bible, but we're following the story of God through the Bible. It's the story of God, not the story of man, story of God. And we've looked from before creation, where God, who God was then, through Adam and Eve and his creation of the world, their choice to do things their own way and not follow his design. And in doing so, death and sin entered the world. And God made a promise to Eve right then that there would be a seed, a child a, from her body that would write things to make it simple and to the point. That would bring redemption to the world that would set right what their choices had set wrong. So begins the story of God to fulfill that promise to Eve. And that's what we read throughout the book. And God guards that seed, that, that those descendants, those children, aiming towards that day when that one is coming. And that, that goes down through Noah and the flood. That goes through Abraham, God choosing him and his children, Isaac and Jacob. Jacob's name is changed to Israel, right? Very important because that's going to be a pivotal name through the rest of the story. Uh, that family uh, grows to where we have 12 sons. Those 12 sons uh, become what's known as the 12 tribes of Israel. Israel grows to a nation, finds itself in bondage in Egypt. God sends who? Moses, and Moses leads the people out and brings them back to the promised land. And uh, when they get back in this land of promise, they set up uh, judges to kind of rule them and direct them and guard them and protect them. But they go through this crazy cycle of sin and repentance and sin and repentance and sin and repentance and oppression from enemies and all this stuff. And then they beg for a king, and so God puts a king over over them or gives them one first of their choosing, which was Saul, which was a disaster. So then God says, if you must have a king, who was their king, by the way? God, right. So he says, if you must have a human king, then it's going to be David. This is the one I've chosen. So David is a king. We talked about him for a few weeks. This week we're moving to David's son. So that's the background to get us up to where we are today. One other quick piece of background. Samuel, Kings, First and Second Kings, and First and Second Chronicles are a timeline. So we're moving now from Samuel, first and second Samuel, we're now moving into Kings and Chronicles. And they line up side by side with each other. Kings is written by uh, prophets. Chronicles is written by priests. But they're telling basically the same storyline. And that storyline will go from where we are right now with Solomon all the way to their exile into Babylon years in the future. And when you look at your Bible and you see all these books and all these little prophets and all this stuff, they align in that timeline. Remember, your Bible is not chronological. Your Bible's a library. So it's all filed where it should go. Prophets with prophets, whatever. But this is the timeline, Kings and Chronicles, just so you know kind of where we're at. So today we're talking about when prosperity becomes poison. I almost called this the poison in peace, and then I was afraid that might be a little too strong, a little too shocking. Let me say up front, prosperity and peace are things that everybody seeks and should seek. That's a great thing. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that at all. However, there's a hidden poison that comes with them, with both of them, and that's what we're going to look at today. And the reason for that is because our sinful nature makes even the whitest heart 
stained. Even the brightest smile, dim, you know. Even the widest eyes close a little. And that's because of the sin inside us. And the same is true with peace and prosperity. There's poison of sin within us, and that has a potential for downfall. And there's only one who knows perfect peace. Only one. Only one who knows perfect prosperity, and it's by following him that we can hope to find it. So if you're in First Kings chapter 11, let's jump in here. Read, uh, let me read verse 9. It says, And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep the Lord's command, what the Lord commanded. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, Since this has been your practice and you've not kept my covenant and my statutes that I commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and I'll give it to your servant. Let me pray. Lord, your word is amazing, and even as I'm describing it and uh, just kind of talking through the story so far and thinking on the way your word's laid out, it's awesome. Thank you for it, Lord. Thank you for giving it to us. Thank you that I don't have to sit here and try to figure out what I think you think or what I think you love and what I think you hate. I, I can know. I can look. You, you had it written down for me. Thank you that I can get up here with the privilege to hold a microphone and not have to worry about, am I saying what your word says? Am I really speaking for you or am I talking for myself, Lord? I, you wrote it down. And, and, and we all have it. I, I, everybody can have it. Lord, thank you for that. Help us never take that for granted. As I open your word today and we continue to talk, Lord, I pray you're glorified in what's said, not me. I'm just a student. I'm just here to learn like anybody else. And I pray that your words come out of my mouth, not the other way around. And I say all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You ever let somebody sell you on something that you would have never normally done? Uh, and then that sort of become even a lifestyle for you or a direction for you in life? Um, I remember being terrified of roller coasters when I was little, like terrified of them, until somebody all but pushed me on one. Uh, loved it, was ready to ride any roller coaster anywhere, and immediately started making fun of anybody who would not get on a roller coaster. You know, it's funny how it flips over. I remember sneaking off in my pickup truck when I could drive, going to Saudi Daisy, Tennessee, uh, to a forbidden, at least by my parents anyway, a forbidden rope swing that dropped 30 feet into the lake. I'd go out there with my friends and spend the day jumping in. I remember the famous line, if Joey jumped off a bridge, would you? Apparently the answer was yes. Uh, I was all about it. I remember smoking the first cigarette that I ever smoked. And it was in the back of a 55 Chevy, cruising around with a friend of mine in Texas who was older than me that handed it to me and said, here, man. Didn't think twice about it. Twelve years later, well over a pack a day. You know, many times I meet people here in Arizona. Met a guy right before church, walked over to the gas station that a homeless guy was talking to. Asked why they came to Arizona. Because as you know, most people here, not everybody, but most people here are not from here. So... I ask what brought you to Arizona or what brought you here. More times than not, it's a boy or a girl, you know, or a man or a woman, as the case may be. It's amazing what, like, the power of influence is on our lives. You know what I'm saying? It's amazing the things that we will change in our life because of the influence of someone else or someone's else. Um, but 
it can be potentially dangerous because what happens when that influence comes at a really good time when things are really good and it seems like a really good thing, uh, but in your mind, but it can lead us away from Christ. So that's what we're kind of looking at today. Quick background. So before David dies, he puts together everything there is to build the temple. Okay, everything there is because he really wants to build it. But God says it's not for you. It's for Solomon. So David designs it, does the plans, stacks all the wood, stacks all the gold, stacks all the other stuff, assigns who's going to build it, assigns who's the worship leaders. I mean, he does everything except say go because he can't do that. So when Solomon's born... Uh, David appoints Solomon to the throne. There's a little drama there. You can read it in the Bible your own time. But Solomon gets the throne. And then God comes to Solomon, offers Solomon whatever he wants. Solomon asks for wisdom to lead. God is loving that he asks for that. So God grants him wisdom. God also grants him great wealth as well. So much wealth and so much wisdom that people come from nations everywhere to hear this guy's wisdom and to see the wealth of Israel. Solomon then builds the temple, pulls the trigger and goes. And then Solomon puts more into it so that it becomes this almost impossible to wrap your brain around construction, um, full of just Gold and displays of extravagant wealth and everything else. Solomon builds a palace for himself that takes more than a decade. Solomon builds a throne that you can go read it in the, I think it's a chapter 10 there. Uh, that's awesome. The way it's described, I mean, it's in detail the way this thing is described. He builds a throne room. Solomon moves the ark into the temple when it's done and they have this big, huge parade and this Big, extravagant thing. And he prays. He says this awesome prayer. You should go back and read it. It's so good. says this awesome prayer of God to God, asking God to inhabit this house, to make this place acceptable to himself, that we can find you here and worship you here. And they have dedicate tens of thousands uh, of sacrifices in that moment. And the Lord appears to Solomon a second time. And these are appearances. You can go look at it. It's not like he hears a voice. It says he appears. He appears a second time. And at the second time, God says, I accept your prayer, and I will inhabit this house. And this will be a place of prayer for all people, and I'll meet my people here. And, but be faithful to me, or you'll lose all of this. Be faithful to me, or you'll lose all of this. And then Solomon proceeds to also write Ecclesiastes. So the Bible book, Ecclesiastes, he wrote that. Proverbs, much of that. Song of Solomon. Some say Psalm of, Song of Songs. Uh, that one as well. He wrote some of the Psalms, all those things. So this is a big player. But decades have passed since David died. Decades now where we're at have passed. And Solomon has been king for quite a while. Decades of peace and prosperity, the most peaceful time in Israel, probably to date. And then that brings us to where we are. So look at verse 1 here. And here's the point to remember. If you grabbed a sheet, that's great. If you didn't, you can get one now. Your way out doesn't make any difference. But either way, on, on the sheet, I always put kind of a one-sentence thought. It's this. When we fail to respect God's word, especially in times of prosperity, we may be led towards practicing sin. That's the key word. But our heart will determine how God responds. So look at verse 1. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall, you, uh, shall they with you, for they will surely turn your heart after other gods. But Solomon clung to these in love. Uh, it wasn't that, real quick, that God hated foreign women. 
Israel was supposed to be a light to the nations. It didn't have anything to do with that. It was, it was you know, Uriah. Remember we talked last week, David and Uriah? Uriah the Hittite, you know. Ruth was a Moabite. So these two are on this list. So it's not that that was impossible. The point here is that those two cases, at least, they displayed faith in the God of Israel before they engaged in marriage. They became part, you could say they converted to the God of Israel before they became part of uh, the nation of Israel. The issue here is these particular nations that he's listing, the problem is that they are actively, publicly led by foreign gods. And what he's saying is, they're going to lead you astray. I don't hate, it's not that I hate them because they are this race, this race, this race. It's these particular ones are in the same land you're in, and they worship foreign gods, and if you hook up with them, you're going to go their way. Because honestly, reason, because their God's going to say something you like better than what I say. You know, I say repent. They're going to say, get what's best for you. You know, things like that. I'm adding that. But that, there you go. So, long and short, no missionary marriages. No, you can just believe what you want, and she can believe what she wants, and it'll work out. Not going to happen. Okay, not going to happen. So, uh, verse 2 there says, Solomon clung to them in love. That's the same exact word that God used with Adam and Eve when he said, cleave to your wife or cling to your wife. It's the same exact word. And here he's clinging to all of these women like a unit. And the way the wording is here. Like it's not like an individual person. He's just seeing them all as like they're, they're his. And I, I got to be honest here. Is there something you could insert in that sentence? I don't know what it is. It could be anything. Something you're clinging to. You, you, only you know that. And notice Solomon's not just clinging to them. He's also turning his back on God and clinging to them instead. It's a both and here. Verse 3. He had 700 wives, have mercy, who were princesses. And then 300 concubines and his wives turned away his heart. Uh... Virginia and I, a couple of weeks ago, were talking about that Sister Wives show. I don't know if any of y'all have seen it, but the uh, fundamental Latter-day Saints group that that has the multiple wives or something. If you've seen it, fine. If you have, it doesn't make any difference. The whole point is the multiple wives scenario played out modern-day TV, and you can watch it online. And I sit there, and I think there's a few questions I'd really like to ask here. Like, first question is, who does he really love? Like, who does he really love? Because you can say whatever you want to say, but who does he really, you really think he loves you all equally? Come on, man. And even if he did, why would that be okay? Even if he did, why would that be okay with you? Who, who would accept that as okay? Why would 700 women participate in this with Solomon? 700, you know? Prosperity, I would say is probably part of it. Security, I'm not a woman, but I'm thinking of some ideas here maybe. Security, authority, notoriety, like some form of respect among nations. Remember, this is the pinnacle of the world at the moment. Hope of becoming the one, maybe. And maybe there's some cases where they were forced into it. That that could be, that's possible. Um, it doesn't sound like it, but it could be. But here's the kicker, you got to know. And it even alluded to it right there. said, along with the wife of Pharaoh, Solomon had a wife. I mean, I know this, but he did. 
First Kings 3, you don't have to turn to all these, I'll just note them, you can note them. First Kings 3, verse 1. Solomon made a marriage alliance with the Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David, made her a wife. First Kings 9, in verse 16. Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, had gone up and captured Gezer and burned it with fire and had killed the Canaanites who lived there in that city and then given it, the whole city, as a dowry. What's a dowry for, right? To his daughter, Solomon's wife, singular. Second Chronicles 8, verse 11. Solomon brought Pharaoh's daughter up from the city of David to the house that he had built for her. For he said, my wife, singular, shall not live in the house of David, king of Israel. He had a wife. And clearly the Bible still singles her out from the 700. It's not like he, he said number 134 of the 700. No. Mm-mm. And Solomon even wrote about desiring the one overall. Song of Solomon in chapter 6 and verse 8. He wrote, there are 60 queens. Now this is just poetry, but get the heart of what he's saying. There's 60 queens and 80 concubines and virgins without number. You could insert a but here. But my dove, my perfect one, is the only one, the only one of her mother, pure to her who bore her. The young woman saw her and called her blessed. The queens and concubines also, they praised her, singular, 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 singular. Clearly, he had a desire, at least in his heart, expressed through poetry for only one. Ecclesiastes 9, uh, verse 9, he says, enjoy life with the wife, singular, whom you love. And he almost sounds frustrated about it because he says all the days of your vain life that he's given you. <laughs> but, but either way, point being, uh, I don't care what sister wives tries to tell you. A woman wants to be the one. They just, they do, and they should. Text says that. Chosen above all. That's the point of marriage. Of all the women on the earth, I choose you. Look at verse 4, chapter 11. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. Notice the turn away happens when he's old. Which means, not that he got weak-minded and dumb, it means that it was a gradual process. He didn't go out and say 700 is going to be the magic number. Let's find 700 and we're good here. 700 was acquired over a life. And in the process of that, they gradually affected and affect exactly what God said would happen. They, they ultimately, by the time he's old, they've got him to a point that he's fully drifted uh, from God. And again, the heart is the issue. Look what he's, he's, what God's addressing here is his heart. What made David's heart different? See what he said there? Verse 4, that it, it was different from David's heart, his father. Remember now, if you were here last week, David stole a man's wife. Uh, the man was fighting wars for David at risking his life at the time, stole his wife while he was gone to war, got her pregnant, then tried to cover it up by bringing him home and getting him, trying to get him to sleep with her so that it would look like he got her pregnant, but that didn't work out. You can go read the story for yourself or go back and look at the video from last week. But in any event, he ultimately gives the guy his own death warrant and marches him back to the front line and they, they, put him on the front lines and abandon him so that he'll be killed so that David doesn't have to sweat the husband of this woman realizing that he's got her pregnant. Commits murder in that sense. Solomon hadn't committed murder. Solomon hadn't even been in battle. He's never even been a soldier facing war. David also had, like Solomon, multiple wives. 
Talked about that last week. It was never okay, but David had them too. Clearly, he had problems with desire. David was most definitely wealthy. So why is David's heart different from Solomon's here? Well, David made epic mistakes, no doubt. But David never turned from the one God. In praise or repentance, either way, it was only ever Jehovah for David. Only ever. No matter what he did, no matter how bad he made a mistake, and he made more than that one, uh, he always went back and repented to only one God. He never built idols. He never sacrificed to foreign gods. Solomon, however, has turned from God, not just in a sinful way, but in a lifestyle way, in a worship way almost. Look at verse 5. Let's take a chunk here. Verse 5 says, for Solomon went after. That means to align yourself with or to follow. It literally means to follow. So went after or followed along with uh, Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians. The Ashtoreth would be a, a totem pole. So this is that kind of worship, that, that the goddess of the Sidonians. And after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. These are, these are uh, false god names. You could say demon names if you want because I believe they were. Verse 6, so Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord. So so Solomon's still following God. He's still going to the temple that he's built. He's still doing sacrifice. He's doing all that. He's just doing God and now. Okay? So it says David had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab. So a high place was literally what it sounds like. Went up on a mountaintop. It didn't have to be the highest mountain in the world, just an elevated position. And built an altar there. Like you go on South Mountain and build an altar there. Now it's a high place. Okay. So. And for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites. And it tells you what mountain. On the mountain east of Jerusalem. If any of you know Jerusalem or Israel. Do you know what the mountain is east of Jerusalem? It's famous. It's in the Bible all over the place. Mount of Olives. So on the Mount of Olives. It would appear. He's built these high places. These idols. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrificed to their gods. Um, Verse 9. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had had, uh, appeared to him twice. Look at that. Appeared to him twice. You feel like if God actually showed up in your face, if Jesus was sat down right there beside you, and you're the only one in the building right now, and you had that experience with him, you feel like you would not mess up anymore? What if he did it twice? What if he did it two times? Would that be enough? Clearly not for him. Uh, Which makes a point for all of us verse 10 and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods but he did not keep the word uh what the lord had commanded he did not keep guard so what it literally means to guard it doesn't just mean to to obey it's a different word it means like uh to build a fortress around and keep it safe he didn't guard What the Lord had commanded him. Which means, if you have to guard, why would you have to guard what God commands, by the way? Obviously, if you have to guard it, it's under threat. Right? It's not neutral. It's not like God just tells you obey and it's easy. 
It literally means if you have to guard it, that means it's under attack. You have to protect it from being stolen, from being attacked, from being uh, messed with. So anyway, verse 11. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, since this has been your practice and you've not kept my word and my statutes that I commanded you, I'll surely tear the kingdom from you and give it to your servant. Now, this is obviously not just about women. And this is the key point for you to note right here. It's obviously not just about women. That's not, this issue is way bigger than that. There were rules for a king that God gave to Moses centuries before their first king. God, knowing that they were going to want kings, he gave rules to Moses before they even went in the promised land. And they're written in your Bible. You don't have to turn to it. But in Deuteronomy 17, verse 16, here's some of the, there's three don'ts and one do. Three don'ts and one do. Verse 16, do not have many horses. Don't acquire many horses. And particularly, or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to gain horses. So at very least, do not buy horses from Egypt. Now, for us, that seems funny. Keep in mind, a horse was like a car. A horse was also like a tank. You know, a horse was a weapon. And uh, also a mode of transportation and a display of wealth. So don't have... Not, you can't, not that you can't have any. Just don't have excessive horses. And don't go to Egypt for them, no matter what. Verse 17, he says, don't acquire many wives. Lest, remember he's talking about the future, so lest his heart turns away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. So there's the three. Excessive silver and gold, excessive horses, particularly from Egypt, and Excessive, multiple wives. It says here, many wives. The word is multiple wives. The fact of the matter is God gave you one. That's it. So there's any case you see in the Bible of multiple wives is never okay. All right? Doesn't mean it didn't happen. It just was never okay. Verse 18. And here's the one do. When he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law or God's word approved by the Levitical priest. So in other words, he's going to write his own hand copy of God's word. And those who are in charge of God's word, the priests are going to make sure he writes it right. So first Kings chapter 10, verse 23. What did Solomon do? Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. Now you can look at this in more detail. I'm just pointing a few out. And the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put in his mind. Every one of them brought his present, particularly articles of silver and gold. Goes on garments, myrrh, uh, spices, horses, mules, uh, so much. So much. Year by year by year by year. So it goes without saying that he easily went beyond with the silver and gold. Verse 26. And Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen. It doesn't say how many horses, but you've got to have enough horses to handle all those guys. If you've been to Israel, I know some of you have. I have as well. There's actually chariot cities or the ruins of it. He built whole cities to house the chariots and the horses. And he says, whom he stationed in the, there it is, chariot cities, and with the king of Jerusalem, verse 28. And Solomon imported horses, what? From Egypt. From Egypt. Uh, verse, first Kings 11, back where we were in verse 3, and he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. All three rules smashed. On top of that, as far as we know, because we're not told any different, no king actually wrote their own copy of the word. David included. 
may have, but we don't, we don't have any record of any king doing that. So, verse 11, back in 1 Kings 11, verse 11, where he says, Since this has been your practice, that word practice is the word tutor. So what does a tutor do? Teach, right? Teach you. Help you excel at whatever you're trying to learn. Solomon's great wisdom here has led him to this epic peace and prosperity, but that's also presented opportunities for sin. I'm saying he had to, but it presented opportunities for sin. And that opportunity gets embraced. Embrace turns to love. And then love leads in just loving whatever it is. And that love leads to practicing. Becoming tutored by it. Because you want to get better at it. You want to enjoy it more. Whatever it is. You want to enjoy it more. So you, you, don't, you may not even realize that that's what's happening. But you are learning to be better at sin Learning to enjoy it better. Learning to have less. Try to make that thing in you that says, don't, a little quieter. You know? And that's what he's saying. That's where you've got. Rather than becoming desperate to escape it, you've embraced it as a tutor. Uh, Why is God, though, saying he's going to tear the whole kingdom? Like, God's making the whole kingdom responsible for this. You know what I'm saying? We... Well, because as the, God, as the king goes, so the country goes. And I'm not jumping into politics, but y'all can walk right down that road if you want. Verse Kings 11, verse 33, though, says, They, God's still speaking on the, in this moment, he's saying, They, have the people, have forsaken me and worshipped. Look at the list. It's the same exact people. Ashtora, the goddess of Sidonians, blah, blah, blah. And he says, And they have not walked in my ways. So what the king is now doing, the people have started doing. They started following right along with them. Let's finish this up. So 1 Kings 11, verse 12, it says, Yet for the sake of David, your father, I will not do this in your days, but I'll tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I'll not tear it away from all the kingdom, but I'll give one tribe to your son. So uh, most of the tribes go to a servant. One goes to a son. For the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I've chosen. So there's two reasons for mercy here. One is for the sake of David. And notice he says that twice in these couple of little sentences. He's pointing that out two times. One time he says, David, your father. So he's saying, I'm doing this because of David, your father. You know him and you know I'm right because you know how he lived. He was your own father. And you can say whatever you want about Saul or anybody else, but you know David and you know how he lived. He was your father. So I'm going to do it for him and you know I'm right because you know how he lived. And then two, I'm going to do it for David, my servant. Because he displayed a lifestyle of serving me. And for him, I'm going to do it that way. He displayed what it meant to love me. He also said that was number one. Number two reason was for Jerusalem. I don't have a lot of time to go off on this now. We'll talk about it later but as we keep going. But location matters. A lot of people think the earth is just this rock floating in space that God's operating on. But everything's ultimately only spiritual and the dirt doesn't really matter. That is not true. Uh, God created the earth and he said what? It is good. Multiple times. God fashioned the earth. God didn't stumble onto a rock floating in space and say, hey, let's work with this thing. You know, there was a point to this. And if you read scripture, as we have, there is a point. Where was Adam placed? In a garden. 
In Eden, that's a pretty specific place. He was put in a place. God didn't just say, well, let's fling him over there and see what he likes best. God designed a place, a land, and put him in it. Uh, when God calls Abraham, God doesn't say, hey, Abraham, follow me. God says, hey, Abraham, follow me where? To a land that I will show you and draws him to a land. Abraham doesn't need, why does God care about bringing him to a land? Just use him where he is, God. The land matters. Moses, bring him out of Egypt. Bring him where? Why not just stay in Goshen? God, why don't you just conquer Egypt and let's have Egypt? Why don't you just rule? It's great here. Come to a land that I'll show you. Brought him back to a land matters. It's all point. And Jerusalem matters. Jerusalem, the city is mentioned more than any other city throughout the entire Bible. And if you look to the future, I know it all points to the cross and that's true. But people say, okay, yeah, but it was done then. That's not true either. There's plenty of texts in the Bible that point to Jerusalem in the future. And if you think I'm crazy, why in the world does the whole world fight over that little piece of land even now? If the piece of land is pointless, why in the world is every body fighting over it, particularly the largest faith in the world? It matters, okay? It matters. Am I saying that the, I'm not saying I'm not the guy that's going to the Holy Land, go kiss it and take your shoes off when you I'm not saying all that. All I'm saying is that piece of land is important and it matters. So God here is saying that He's going to spare for the sake of Jerusalem too, the city He said that I've chosen. That is a specific thing. Okay? So verse fourteen, last little piece here, and the Lord raised up an adversary against Solomon. Now, you can read it in your own time, but the Lord does exactly as he says. He divides the kingdom between one of Solomon's uh, servants, Jeroboam, who stabs Solomon in the back and takes ten of the tribes with him. God's designing all of this. And then Rehoboam is the birth son of Solomon. And he, gets, he actually gets two. It says one tribe. That's because Judah and Benjamin was tiny. And the smallest of tribes, and so frequently they put them together in their language. So, ten tribes in the north, known as Israel, and then two tribes in the south, sometimes they say one, known as Judah, but it was Judah and Benjamin. Okay? That's important because the entire rest of history, that's the way it's going to stay. Entire rest of history, that's the way it's going to stay. Even when Jesus shows up, it's still that way. Okay, to some degree, it's still the busted up tribe. So this is a, the only reason I'm belaboring the point here is because historically speaking, this is a huge moment where God divides the kingdom away from um, Solomon. So the poison in peace, when prosperity becomes poison, you know, I know that sounds so depressing and sad. And I know. The Christ kingdom, it says, will be a kingdom of peace, right? He's the prince of peace. Shouldn't we want peace? That's, he says his kingdom will be a prince. It will be a kingdom of peace. He's the prince of peace. He's the creator of all things. Prosperity doesn't even begin to scratch the surface, right, of, of describing him. But his peace is different. In John fourteen twenty seven, you don't have to go to it, but when Jesus is leaving the disciples or preparing to, he tells them, my peace I leave with you. Not as the world gives. It means that the peace from God, the peace from Jesus is different. It's not the same. It's not going to disappoint you. It's not going to tempt you. It's not going to mess you up. Paul in Philippians 4, 7 called it the peace that passes understanding. It's not even, you can't even explain it. What he means by that is, how can you possibly be at peace right now? Your house just burned to the ground. 
don't understand. How can you possibly be at peace right now? Your, your wife of 50 years just died of cancer right in front of you. How can you be at peace right now? I don't understand. Paul said it was a secret to be at, at peace at all, at all times. If I'm wealthy, I'm at peace. If I'm poor, I'm at peace. If I've got a huge family, I'm at peace. If I have no family, I'm at peace. Like no matter what, he called it uh, a secret that he'd learned. It's a peace in knowing that Christ is within you, that you have Christ. And, dude, that's enough. Like nothing else matters. Anything else is gravy. Right? It doesn't make any difference at that point. For all eternity, I have that. Kill me, it's okay. I mean, I still got that. You can never take that from me. That's the peace. And maybe peace and prosperity are foreign words to you right now. Maybe you're like, man, if you knew what's going on in my life, you wouldn't be talking about it. Maybe that's the case. Maybe you feel like your life has been one disaster after another, and you wish even a moment of peace. Man, wouldn't that be great? If things would just be still for a second, I can promise you that that peace is possible. can promise you it's possible, but it's a peace in your heart that despite your circumstances, you're good. And that comes from giving your life to Christ who loves you, proved it by dying for you, and made possible for you to have that peace. And it all starts with repentance, with saying, look, I've been trying it my own way, and this is the best I've ever gotten. It's terrible, and I hate it. And God, I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. I know who I am. You don't have to tell me I'm a mess up. I know it. I tap. You know, I'm finished. Can, can you admit that? Bible calls it a sinner. Can you admit that? Can you believe who he is? He's the creator. I believe he created everything. I believe he is that. I believe that he is the one he says he is. I believe that Jesus is who he says he is. Can you trust? Hey, I know that I'll never be good enough, but I trust that what I'm hearing is true, that the cross was good enough. I trust that. Can you say that? If you can, you just tell him. You don't need me to have a moment where you come up here and we pray. I would love to do that with you. Come tell me and we will pray. But you don't have to do that. Just tell him. Just tell him it's between you and him. And listen, if you're a believer, look, back to my sentence there. When we fail to respect God's word, especially in times of prosperity, we may be led, maybe, may not, but most likely going to be led towards practicing sin, being tutored by it whether we realize it or not. But our hearts are going to determine how God responds. Our hearts are going to determine how God responds. Remember, it was not just what Solomon did. It was also what he did not do. What did he not do? You remember? The rules for the king. What did he not do? None of them did it. He's supposed to write his own copy. Uh, there is a journal, you can look it up online and find it on if you want to do them. I, they haven't done every book, but they've done a lot of them. Uh, but it's a journal, it's called like the 1717 Journal or something. I stumbled on it a while back and couldn't believe it. It's pretty cool. But it's literally a blank journal that's marked out where the verses go. And you just literally pick the book and start going through it and just handwrite your own copy. Uh, you don't have to do that. You can just buy a spiral notebook and do it. But I would encourage you to try that. I would encourage you to try that. You don't have to be overly spiritual about it unless you want to. You don't have to do any of that. It might just be you sit down and you write three or four verses. Maybe you're like, I'm going to write a chapter a day. Maybe you get to Psalm 119 and you say, yeah, we're going to do this one across five or eight days. Whatever. But you, you just decide, I'm going to write a little bit every day. I, I would challenge you to do that. Just see what happens if you just write it. 
And you don't got to spend a lot of time on it, but get, get it right. Write it exactly as you read it. And remember, it's not about perfection. Let me leave you with these verses. John wrote these to believers. In 1 John 3, verse 9, he says, No one is born of, who is born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's, son, God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. All he's saying there is not that you won't sin, not that you won't get in the habit of it at times, but you just can't adopt that lifestyle because the Holy Spirit in you is going to continue to smoke you until you say, you know what, I'm done. I can't keep doing it. I can't keep doing this. I can't keep doing this. At some point, it has to stop. Apart from the Holy Spirit, go to as far as you want to go with it for as long as you want to go with it to whatever end you want to go to. But if you belong to Christ, you can't keep doing that. And he goes on in 1 John 2, just before that, in verse 1, he says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, which we obviously do, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. We have an attorney at the hand of God, the Son of God, who says, Yeah, but I paid for that. Yeah, yeah Dad, but he's mine. She's mine. I paid for her. Verse 16. For all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but it's from the world. It's the world that Adam and Eve gave us. And the world's passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. How great are those words, man? If you all stand up with me, we're going to do one more song and call it done. Uh, but I want you to think back really quick as you're standing. Just think back on that last verse. I love that verse. It said, it said what did it say? And the world is passing away along with its desires. Along with its desires. There's going to come a day where we don't have to wrestle with sin anymore. Where, where it's not a battle anymore. If you belong to Christ, man, in a lot of ways, that's one of the greatest hopes ever. To know that it's passing away. It's going away. It's not always going to be like this. And there's going to come a day when not only are we going to see him and we're going to be with him, but we're not going to have to wrestle with sin anymore. And if your faith is in him, that's something to look forward to. If it's not, man, do it today and then come tell me, you know. Lord, I love you. As I said before, your word's awesome, and I say that every week because it is. It's not just a random statement or a random word. It is amazing. Thank you for that, Lord. I thank you for Solomon, Lord. I thank you for the life that he lived. And I know he failed. I know he failed in a lot of ways. But I, but I also have that example put down here where I can see and be guided by it, Lord. I don't know how he finished, if he repented of all of that. I, I don't know how all that worked out. That's not for me to decide. But thank you for having his life recorded that I can look at it and see that and be guided by it myself in your word. I pray you use our lives, Lord, to do that here in this valley, in this church. Uh, wherever we live, use our lives to be a God for others that they can look down at your word and be moved to see and know you. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.